welcome to the Cory Doctorow podcast. This one is well and truly the last one for a while because I am about to hit the road. I just got back from the California Independent Booksellers Association Conference in Sacramento, literally got off the plane about half an hour ago and came straight home to sit down at my mic. And I'm about to leave. I'm about to head out of town. I'm going to be in Ottawa on September the 15th, speaking at the Canadians Connected Conference. And then I will be in Toronto on September the 19th, speaking at one of my favorite bookstores in the world, Type Books, at their location in The Junction, which is a great neighborhood. It's where my grandfather and his brothers and sisters grew up. Then I'll be in New York for Unfinished Live, as well as an event at Columbia University. And uh, then I'll be doing an event at the San Francisco Public Library on September the 25th for my book, Choke Point Capitalism. And another event on September the 27th in Los Angeles at Book Soup, another fantastic bookstore. There's other stuff coming up. There's some more events in New York that aren't quite on there yet. If you go to pluralistic.net and just look at the upcoming appearances, you'll find all the details, links, and so on. Well, I am back at my desk. I took two weeks out in the middle of a very chaotic time and went to Burning Man, the dirt rave. I did not get COVID and I did not get heat stroke. So I think I won Burning Man. It was amazing. It was very, very hot. It was 115 degrees Fahrenheit almost every day. It was very dusty. We had a lot of whiteouts. The climate emergency is definitely alive and well in the Black Rock Desert. There had been no rain to speak of for a couple of years. Normally, the winter rains will tamp down the dust in the desert and create this sort of beautiful almost like a Persian rug crackalair on the desert floor. That was not in evidence this year. There were just great drifts of dust that blew up at the slightest breeze and many times just immobilized us because of the degree to which we could not see around them. Now, that all said, it was a stellar couple of weeks. The burn was amazing. The actual burning of the man was really something. The drone show was incredible. And of course, the best thing was seeing old friends and making new ones. I really had a wonderful time. What else to tell you? Well, my mind is elsewhere. I'm getting ready to leave. And so I guess the last thing I'll say to you before I do this week's reading is thank you to those of you who supported the Kickstarter for the Choke Point Capitalism audiobook. And for those of you who haven't yet, to remind you that you have three days. We've raised a little over $100,000. We're going to be donating about 500 copies to libraries around the world. And this is your chance to get the audiobook, the hardcover, the ebook, together or singly, as well as pins and stickers. And I hope that you will drop by. If you look for Choke Point Capitalism Kickstarter, you'll find that Kickstarter there. I hope you'll drop by and consider advance ordering those books. The way that we're going to be selling them is very exciting. They're going through regular booksellers, which means that all of those orders will be processed on the day the book comes out. And they will all show up as part of our sales for the bestseller list. I think there's a pretty good chance we'll get on the bestseller list straight away as a result of the generosity and enthusiasm of our backers. And if you go and back it, you can help us with that as well. And funny thing about being on the bestseller list is it makes you an even bigger bestseller. Because once you hit the bestseller list, every independent bookstore in the country orders between five and ten copies and puts the book face out on a table at the front of the store. And that, of course, makes it a lot easier for readers to find it. So this is a moment where if you've ever asked yourself, what can I do to help an author whose work I admire? This is a moment where you can do something. You can order a copy of the book, the ebook, the audiobook. You can donate copies to live libraries and so on. If you were to do that, it would be wonderful. All right. So I'm going to read you this week's medium column. It's called Sound Money. 
And it's a column whose impetus is in Burning Man. I found myself at three in the morning in a friend's camp arguing about sound money with a stranger. And I realized after that argument that there were things I still wanted to say. And so, as I often do when I find myself thinking about something that I disagree with, as I often do, I went and wrote an essay about it. And so here is that essay from doctoro.medium.com. This is Sound Money. The best money is social, not personal. The inflation hawks have a point. Inflation is genuinely destabilizing. When working people's purchasing power declines, they rightly worry that heating their homes, putting food on the table, or commuting to work will cause them to fall into debt and, eventually, poverty. But where the inflation hawks go wrong is in blaming money printing for inflation. It's true that when demand exceeds supply, prices go up. But nutrition, shelter, and transport are not luxury goods whose prices are spiking because we gave ordinary people more money than they deserved. It takes a certain kind of willful blindness to focus exclusively on the role that demand plays in inflation without paying attention to supply. After all, the current inflationary run coincided with some extremely significant supply shocks, the removal of Russian oil and gas from global markets, the pandemic shattered supply chains, and blatant illegal coordinated price gouging on the part of cartels and monopolies. Focusing on the too-much-money side of the inflation equation ignores the too-little-capacity side. Those brittle supply chains that were shattered by the pandemic They were a policy choice, not an historical inevitability. The world's rich countries decided to dismantle their manufacturing and send it overseas in search of cheap labor and weak regulation. The poor world was also screwed by policy choices. Institutions like the IMF insisted that former colonies orient their production around export goods rather than self-sufficiency. The monopolies that are using the polycrisis as a pretense to hike prices... They weren't accidents. They were deliberately created under an ideology that insisted that monopolies are efficient and competition is for losers. Our historical touchstones for hyperinflation are likewise crises of capacity. Weimar Germany, the poster child for inflation, is a perfect example. The decision to impose reparations on Germany beyond its ability to pay doomed Germans to a spiral of decreasing capacity. Prices went up in Germany because there wasn't enough stuff to go around, not because they printed too much money. Indeed, Weimar's money printing happened after prices went up, because there wasn't enough money to meet the skyrocketing prices. Fun fact, Weimar hyperinflation can be blamed on an accident of history. During the negotiations for the Treaty of Versailles, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was sidelined by the 1918 flu pandemic. Wilson had been adamant that Germany's reparations should be balanced against its ability to recover and remain politically stable, lest it slide into military belligerence again. With Wilson in his sickbed and out of the picture, other world leaders were free to impose unattainable payments on Germany, which led inevitably to its political collapse and the rise of fascism. Capacity creation is key to fighting inflation. The reality is that when there's not enough to go around, prices will go up. 
And while we can, and have, create capacity by conquering distant lands, or by miring them in debt, or by capitalizing on their desperation, that's a very brittle kind of capacity. Far more robust is the capacity that comes from investing in domestic capability, infrastructure, education, manufacturing, research, conservation, and environmental remediation and care. These are not goods that the private sector willingly produces. Given the choice between inventing a new life-saving drug and repatenting an existing drug and then jacking up prices, the pharma industry inevitably chooses the latter. The policy choice to unshackle American business from the duty to make things created a wave of financialization that saw the company's most productive businesses dismantled and converted into exotic financial instruments whose only productive output was bubbles and financial crises. Those once productive businesses owed their existence to the public sector. Public sector investment in capacity building gave us the tech industry, pharma, and the sustainable energy sector, and more. When public investment is successful, the economy grows. When the economy grows, there are more goods and services for sale. When that happens, you need more money. Otherwise, money becomes deflationary, with the same dollar buying more over time, which means that people hoard their money rather than spending it, and economic growth is halted. Seen this way, money can be viewed as just another commodity, one whose supply has to change based on the demand. But there's a long tradition of suspicion of money creation, and its unfairly maligned sibling, money annihilation, which is what happens when governments tax back the money that they spent into the economy. The sound money crowd argue that for money to be a medium of exchange and a store of value, its supply must be fixed and not fluctuate based on the need to increase capacity. They argue that money is like a yardstick, and say that increasing the monetary supply when the economy grows is like making the inches farther apart when you want to measure something bigger. That's a deeply flawed analogy. Holding the money supply constant irrespective of the demand for money is like declaring the hottest weather as 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and then when the temperature climbs to 115 degrees, making that equal to 100 degrees and recalibrating all your previous measurements. It's like declaring your waistline to be 32 inches, and then when you gain weight, redefining 32 inches as whatever your waistline happens to be. More important than the flaws and the we don't change the units when the thing we measure changes analogy is how a fixed money supply works in the real world. Because the demand for money rises and falls based on what's going on in the economy, a fixed supply currency inevitably slides into chaotic volatility, as does the price of any good whose supply is fixed and whose demand varies. Thus, fixed supply currencies aren't just unreliable units of account, their volatility makes them poor stores of value too. Using volatile assets to store value is a dangerous business. When the value of an asset slips, it can trigger cascading liquidations, as the loans that are backed by that asset find themselves under-collateralized. This is worsened by contracts that trigger automatic liquidations when the value of collateral drops. There's a reason these contracts are called suicide notes. All right, that's this week's talk. I will be back in a few weeks. I'll be writing these medium columns still because I write those every week, but I won't be podcasting them or anything else for a while. I might drop some of the audio from one or more of our um, Choke Point Capitalism events in here. And again, if you're in Toronto, I'd love to see you next week. The event was planned 
It must be said a little hastily, and there hasn't been much promotion. I'm a little worried that I'm going to end up in an empty room. So if you are in Toronto or if you have friends in Toronto, please do tell them that I'll be speaking on September the 19th. Please come on out to Type Books in the Junction. Bring your friends, tell your friends, and please come to our other events in San Francisco and Los Angeles. There's more coming up in the D.C. and in Ottawa again, and also, gosh, in Boston, I think twice, London, maybe Berlin. We've got a lot coming up, and I hope to see you at those. It's been a while since I've been out on tour. Not going to lie, I'm a little anxious. So uh, I'm hoping that you'll be there to reassure me. Anyway talk to you in a few weeks on the other side of the first leg of this tour. Bye now. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours because we don't give a darn. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.